First Corinthians chapter 15. We'll finish up this uh, chapter this week, Lord willing, and then next week we'll get into chapter 16 and everybody's favorite subject of uh, giving, tithing. So we'll see what the Bible has to say about that. Um, just by way of review, last week, of course, we were looking at the uh, promise of the resurrection. That, of course, has been the theme, really, of uh, the uh, chapter. And uh, we saw our connection to the first and second Adams, one of the way that Paul brings this out, uh, to kind of explain how all this took place. In a mechanical way, we might say, our connection to the first Adam and the second Adams teach us, us how we became sinners and subject to death and how we became sinless and victorious over death. In the first Adam, we received our sin guilt, and in the second Adam, he has taken the guilt away. Um, and, of course, uh, in the first Adam, we received death, and in the second Adam, we received resurrection and life. Uh, we also have taken our time, we don't deal with this all the time, but, it, you know, as, it, as we come across it, clearly, this is, uh, I've taken the time to go to different scriptures in the New Testament that I believe teach the same thing Paul taught. We've seen Paul, Peter, John, and Jesus all taught that our resurrection takes place when Jesus comes back, and that that is the next thing to happen. And there will be a general judgment, and this day is to be considered the end. And we'll see a little bit more of that even in our text today. And so again, as we, uh, you know, went through the book of Revelation and all the different views of the book of Revelation, well, I try to take the, the view, uh, that Revelation cannot contradict what Jesus first taught and then, of course, his apostles after him about the, how it all unfolds. And so what, what we've been saying here is correct. Then uh, when we come to Revelation, we don't all of a sudden divorce it from that, but we assume then that the the, uh, the, the millennial, the, the uh, thousand years, whatever that might be, uh, the return of Christ, all those things must fit into the same time date. And so as we went through that, of course, uh, a couple of years ago, I tried to make that plain. But there's a reason. In other words, I'm not. I don't. I'm trying. I don't like to just accept the system. And then start to try to force the Bible to fit that system. That's always a danger for all theologians and all Christians that you have to be aware of. But I try, especially when it comes to eschatology, to see what, how it, what, how it all fits together and let that be my system. And, and of course I know everybody would probably say that even in other uh, systems and, and we understand that the, that's not always easy to do, but that's been that's why I do and preach what I do. Um, we left off last week <clears throat> with the uh, coming of the Lord, which is the day of the resurrection. Paul makes that crystal clear. Certainly, the resurrection of our bodies will be when the Lord comes back. The dead will be raised out of the uh, their graves and receive their body, and then we at the, that time will receive our bodies as well. Those who are alive, anyway. Might not be us. And so verse 53 seems to sum it all up that these bodies that are limited in strength and endurance must put on that which is perfect and eternal. That's where we left off last week. For this perishable body must, so must, so again, 
This helps guard us against false religions and against uh, uh, Christian error that might be out there. You know, we're not going to be absorbed back into the eternal nothingness. We will not be living in heaven because heaven will be the new heavens and new earth. I mean, that, that's where we'll be living. We'll be living in disembodied spirits floating around in the air or in space wherever. In other words, Paul has laid down some things, some facts that we can know. So this um, this mortal body must put on immortality. So we shall live forever. I mean, you know, there's just certain things that we can take to the bank that Paul lays out here for us. Our eternal souls must be housed in a suitable body. We talked about that, a body that's suitable for the eternal state. This must happen because this is the plan of God for us. It always has been. And, of course, Paul's other point is that we can count on this at the, at the day of our death. We know what's going to happen when we die, what's going to happen in the future. And that's that's, that's interesting. We have something that nobody, that the unbelievers just don't have. There's a lot of theories out there, a lot of nonsensical uh, theories out there, but we know what's going to happen. And so verses 51 through 54 is really a statement of the doctrine of the resurrection, and we have seen that this is the next thing to take place. And at this point, as we've said, we shall have our glorified bodies. Then, in verse 54, uh, says that when this happens, death is swallowed up in victory. Now again, we've got to stop. We've got to forget about the systems. And uh, we've got to say, what does this mean? What's the ramification? If in that day, when the Lord comes back and we receive our, we receive our, our glorified bodies, Paul says here that death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, there's no more death. Death is, death is a state of the past. <clears throat> He's uh, quoting here from Isaiah 25. So, if there is to be a seven-year tribulation and a thousand-year physical kingdom to follow after that time, then is death really swallowed up in victory? When the Lord comes back, you know, the answer has got to be no. Because it, because if, if, if we receive our bodies, when the Lord comes back for us, at, at what is referred to as the rapture, which is what I believe the Bible teaches, that's it. Death is swallowed up in victory. There's no more death. There's no, and, and, and there's, that means there can be no, uh, seven year tribulation because there's all kind of dying going on supposedly during that time. And a thousand year reign, there's going to be death going on. Uh, during that time, both lost and saved, if, if all that even happens, which I don't think it does, but you see the problem. Is death swallowed up or not? And that's why, as we quoted John MacArthur, and I love John MacArthur, uh, he says that, well, that's referring, death is swallowed up in 54, those who died, the Christians between Pentecost and the rapture. And, but those in the Old Testament, and uh, those in the the uh, tribulation and the millennial reign, that doesn't, or that's not apply to them. Their, their death swallowed up in victories later on. Well, you know, I just, I think that it kind of speaks for itself. It begins to, to, to crumble when we see what Paul is saying here. 
So visit verse 54. The subject here is what happens at that point. When the perishable puts on the perishable. That's the issue. Not, not that it happens, although that's certainly the case. When it happens, then shall come to pass the saying. In other words, this is fulfilled. When the Lord gives us our glorified bodies, there is no more dying at that point. Death is gone. Christ has uh, had complete, utter victory over all those things at the end of it. In verse 55, he quotes from Hosea, who is asking the question, because of the consequences of death all around him. In verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That, that's kind of the cry that we all have. When you, look, when you watch your parents die, perhaps if you watch a child die, you see death. When will it end? And that's kind of what Hosea was, was calling out for. And so Paul is quoting that and said, here's the answer, verse 56. The sting of death is, is uh, sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, Christ gives us victory. Or who He gives us victory to Jesus Christ our Lord. That, that's how it's, it's taking place. That's how all this is going to take place. It's going to come about. Here's the answer, he says in verse 56. It is because of sin. And, and again, I think what he does here in verse 56, um, really th- in 57, it's a, it's a statement of the gospel. It's explaining how in the work of Christ, the, the death, the, the consequences of sin will someday be gone. And we'll have victory over them. The sting of death is sin. What, what does that mean? Well, this, again, it's, it, it, I think when you read this, it's easy to not really get confused about it. But if you just think about it, what's the sting of death? Well, sin. In other words, what, you know, death is, is not fun. But as Paul said, you know, we don't grieve like the world does. Because, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine. He, he's, I've known him since the ninth grade. He's my age. He preaches in Texas. He recently lost his mother. I called him up, offered my condolences to talk, and uh, and, we, and we were talking about the fact that that this the whole experience that he's gone through over these last three weeks or so would be totally different if his mother was lost. It would be totally different in some senses, right? And and so, so the um, death the reason death is bad. It's not because we were separated from loved ones, although that's, that's it, you know, not unpleasant. It's that if, you, if death, uh, it's, it's a spiritual death that follows, being separated not just from life, but from God. And so death, because of sin, we have guilt. Therefore, death is not a good thing. That's going to lead us to hell. It's going to be the avenue to hell. But the sin problem has been taken uh, um, care of. But, he, but before that, he says, the power of sin is the law. It, it's, just, it's just kind of thinking through this stuff. It is because we're lawbreakers that we became sinners, right? It's because we disobeyed God that we became sinners. So the reason that death is so bad is because we're sinners. And the reason we're sinners is because we are guilty of breaking or transgressing God's law. So that's the situation we find ourselves in. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, through the work of Christ is what he's referring to, is, is what Christ has done. So you see, it's really a, 
just a kind of a blanket, short-hand way of referring to the work of the gospel and the need of the gospel. Um, of course, Romans uh, 5.12, which is a, really a parallel passage to a lot of what we've been talking about, says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, first Adam, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, right? So, and that's really what Paul is saying here, but just much more concisely. But we should be familiar enough with, with Scripture and the doctrines of these things to realize what he's saying. So while physical death is a result of sin, that is the least of our problems. As much as we hate it, as much as we hate to, to grieve our loved ones and to see death, the, 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 that's all physical death. It, it's to know that, and that's what I say with my, my friend's mother, if she had been lost, he would know that she was in hell. And that just completely compounds the problem and, the, and the, how, how awful death would be. It's separation from God that's a horrible consequence. This is why for a Christian the sting of death is God because it brings us into Christ's presence. Death is not pleasant as a rule, but we know that it's going to be, instead of bringing us to the judgment of God, it's going to bring us into the presence of Christ and where there's peace, you see. So he mentions the law because sin came through the violation of God's law. And again, this is a summary statement of we're seeing the consequences of sin. Well, how do we escape violating God's law? Well, Christ came and he lived. He obeyed God's law on our behalf. That's been imputed. His righteousness and obedience has been imputed to us. So that's why he's saying all these things. We can't obey the law, but we can be saved from it through Jesus Christ. So does death have the last word? Well, for the Christian, the answer is a resounding no. Death has lost its sting. And now death, in a sense, is our final victory. We, we have victory over death. Death is as frightening for a Christian as a scorpion whose stinger has been removed or as a uh, snake whose fangs have been uh, taken out. I know some of you are saying, well, I don't care things are there or not. I you know, hate them. Well, that's a sense that still applies, right? The sting of death has been taken out, but it's still no fun to die. It's still something we fear. There's, there's just that natural fear, right? But the sting, the, 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 the consequence of, of sin and death has been taken away for the Christian. So a defamed snake is still a snake. to obey the law, but we're dead to the consequences, to the, to the to condemnation of the law. So it's like a marriage is once a husband dies, the wife is free. From that, no longer under his uh, being united to him, 
she's free to marry somebody else. And of course, that somebody else is Christ. Once we Christ, once we die in Christ, uh, we're dead to the law. We uh, now can marry. We are, in, of course, the bride of Christ, and we're free to serve Him. The law has no more hold over us. Is kind of his point. It brought death, and it will result in eternal death. But sin comes to the hold that the law has over us. And so Romans 7 is saying that since we have died to the law, it has no hold over us, like a dead husband has no hold over his widow. So so keeping the law on our behalf, sin has no more power uh, because Christ has kept it for us, and he's given us his righteousness, so we're no longer seen as lawbreakers. So, so you see here what Paul saying it's, it's like a domino effect. Once the guilt of law is gone, sin is no more longer a problem, and so sin's consequences, of, of, which is death, has no more hold over us. So, so really, Jesus did that in three ways, at least three ways, three primary ways. He lived sinlessly and kept the law perfectly in that life. Secondly, he died as our substitute. He paid the penalty of our guilt. And then his righteousness is imputed to us so that we're no longer seen as sinners, as lawbreakers, but we're seen as law keepers. And of course, he was raised uh, for our justification. His resurrection is proof that all that was effective. And so we just think about it. Death no longer owns us. We own death, in one sense. First uh, Corinthians three twenty-two: Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. See, it doesn't about all all good things are yours. That's true. I mean, but everything, death. We own death. Why do you, I don't want to own death? Well, but in the way he's talking about it is that we conquered it. It, was, it can't do anything to us. It's, a, it's just another means for us to glorify the Lord in. It's become our friend in that sense, if I can say it like that. So this is just standard doctrine for Paul. That Christ did these things on our behalf, and this is the result of it. Now, we come down to verse 58, which is the final verse here, but this would be then the, the application of the first 57 verses. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is, in, in, in that sense, it's much like our Sunday school message. There is uh, power in the gospel. There's power in the Christian life, in, 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 in the truth of the Bible, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Someone said that information without application is useless. And, and I would agree with that as a rule, but the Bible is full of information. Everything about it is important and it's good to know. I think some people think that if, and I've, I've seen them, I've had them in my church, not this church, but uh, that if I didn't make a, give them a, a practical application at the end of the message, you know, where exactly how you can take this and use it in your life. Well, they just felt cheated. You know, what was the point? Well, the point is that I'm, I'm teaching you what the Bible says. And I, I remember one young lady kind of 
you know, saying at the end of the message that she didn't feel like you know, I made an application. And an uh, older gentleman behind her says, it's not his job to apply, it's your job to apply. And I think it's the right thing. Now, as I do make application. I think you all can, you know, know that very well. I'm not afraid to sometimes make application. But sometimes information is good. You need to know it, and you need to think about, all right, now, in this situation, how do I use what I know about God's Word, what I know about God, right? And things like that. And so, sometimes it's just knowing the truth about God. And let's just use this case, just knowing that what's next on the agenda, what's going to happen to me when I die, what's going to happen when Christ comes back, and all the things that's going to happen, all that, all because of Christ, Paul says, therefore, be strong in the Lord. Live like it. Now, you can make your own individual application, whatever situation you're in, but in all things, he says, abound for the Lord. <coughs> Always abounding. So, but he makes, you know, certainly application. Paul has already said that believing in the resurrection will affect our behavior. That we've seen both all Jesus, John, Peter, and Paul have all made that very same application with the doctrine of the resurrection. Um, that's how Paul generally does his writing. He states the, uh, the indicatives, the, the, the truisms, and then he gets to the prescription or he gets to the application. If you read the, the Two obvious examples are the book of Romans and Ephesians. In Romans, up the first 11 chapters, Paul doesn't tell us to do anything. He just states truth after truth after truth. And then starting in chapter 12, you go back and you read it. He starts making an application telling you what you're supposed to do. Why all this, you know, now that she's, now he's giving you a reason why and explained all this. And Ephesians is the exact same thing. And that's kind of his style. And it's, I think, obviously, it was inspired like that for a good reason. So Paul first refers to them as beloved brothers, which is interesting since the Corinthian church was such a mess. But he refers that, for the most part, he's, re- he's referring to, he assumes that he's referring to, he assumes that they are brothers and sisters for the most part. If we're saved, we've taken on Christ's name, we've been given a new family. So, yeah, maybe the Corinthian church was a mess, and, and no doubt part of what Paul's doing is exposing the hypocrites and the false professors, but they're still his brothers and sisters, and he's trying to help them. Because if we're saved, we've taken on Christ's name, and we have a new family. We've got to think about ourselves differently. There's an example of this in Acts 16. With Lydia, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you are, you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She prevailed against it. Uh, uh, she prevailed uh, upon us. So, she recognized that her house is now the house of, an, she has a new family. Not just her immediate family, but now Paul is her family. 
and all those with Paul as their family. So whatever's mine is yours. If it can be used for the Lord's work, it can be used to help you. You know, so you, you, we have to recognize that now we're, we're brothers and sisters of Christ. Things have changed if you're a Christian. You know what? I'm the firstborn in my family. I'm the oldest child. And there was a time when I ruled the roost. Every toy in the house was mine. I wouldn't have to share it with anybody. All, all of the attention, my parents' attention was on me. And then all of a sudden I had a sister born. And I had to learn a lot. The world doesn't revolve around me. That's Still, I've learned that sometimes, right? But now I've got to learn to share. Because that's what families are. We're, we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And I think that's extremely important for any human being to understand that. And we need that. There's no more and more miserable than people who think that they're really uh, the only thing that matters. So Paul has spoken pretty plainly to his brothers and sisters in a church that had some pretty ugly problems. But he did so because they were family, because he loved them. He also spoke like those to express, as I said, to, 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 to expose perhaps the hypocrite. But with all he says to them, he reminds them that they are part of God's family, and so they have certain responsibilities. Therefore, my beloved brothers, you have a responsibility. This isn't just truth to, to know. Is important and as beneficial as it is just to know these things, it's going to affect the way we live as well. Someone said uh, an interesting quote here, I thought it was kind of interesting. Don't make Christian love the victim of our emotions, but the servant of our wills. And, and we've talked about this before, that if love is just an emotion, if it's just feelings, uh, it's going to wane. You know, the you know, when you get married, the preacher asks you, do you take her to be your wife? Not, do you feel like it? Now, to be honest, probably at every wedding, you feel like it. But if that's all it is, there's a point going to come. That's why we add through sickness and health, through poverty, through riches, because you're not going to always feel like it. But the point is, you are making a promise to be true and faithful to this person. Feelings aside, right? And God has chosen us for each other, just like a baby is born to the mother. The mother doesn't choose the baby. I mean, naturally, things are done naturally. That's what the Lord gives her. You love your child because she's your child. And we love one another because we're all God's children. And by that, I don't mean everybody on earth, but about those in the church, those who are saved. We're God's children. They're the ones that God has given you. So here, the exhortation is how we are to, we're going to love the Lord and the Savior and our Heavenly Father in the Christian context. So the term, therefore, means that although we've learned on the subject of the resurrection, should give us a conviction that will be unchangeable, that will be unable to be removed, right? Be steadfast, unmovable. First of all, he says, this should this should bring a steadfastness and a faith in your life that will transcend all problems. <clears throat> if our faith is a matter of convenience or a preference, but not a conviction, it will change as the circumstances change. But if what Paul has told us is a conviction, we are sure of its truth, 
then we will not be dissuaded from serving the Lord as he commands us through difficulty. Because as difficult as it might be, we still know what's going to happen. We still know the truth. We still know there's a judgment. We still know there's a God who's watching all this. There's a God who is uh, providentially doing all this. Right? So, so we're not, we should, that's, that should, that should be the end of it. <clears throat> I hope that each one who has been faithful to be present while I've, I've preached this chapter has been convicted by the Holy Spirit, not my ability to persuade people, because that's not all that great, but convicted by the Holy Spirit that Jesus physically arose from the dead and that we shall be receiving the same type of body that he has now and be with him in eternity without reference to sin. I mean, I hope that we're all just firmly convinced about that. That's not a question. I hope that no one can come up to you claiming to be a Christian and telling you it's not true, that you would fall for that. And if it is, it will profoundly affect your life. So basically these words say, sit there and don't get up, don't move. That's what the words mean here. Stand in truth, don't move away from it. We shouldn't be a flighty people. We shouldn't be easily changeable, even in our doctrine. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't sometimes find ourselves having to be corrected in our understanding of Scripture at times. But it's, it, it, but certainly the foundational things, we, we shouldn't be easily dis, uh, dissuaded from that, if ever, in most of those things. <clears throat> we should believe these fundamental truths just as surely as we believe the, the grass is green, the sun comes up in the morning, this, this is, I shall receive a new body when Christ comes back to the earth. And I, and I take that with me wherever I go. If, if, if the, it is the belief that Job said one day we will stand in our bodies and see our Redeemer. And it's, a, it's the same thing that we're talking about here. And that's what has allowed people to go to the stake, to be burned at the stake. Because, because if you didn't believe that, there's no way you would, right? It's no accident that Paul begins with the cross and moves to the resurrection. Because the resurrection has no meaning if sin hasn't been forgiven, and the cross is useless if there's no resurrection. But it was a point to have our sins forgiven. And so a solid conviction of these things it will allow us to get on with serving the Lord regardless of how we are received by the world. You know, any dead fish can go with the flow, but it takes life, it takes strength to be able to swim, you know, not just upswing, but just to stay the same. It takes, it takes life. When we see people who just go with the cultural flow, wherever the, you know, and you see, there's lots of churches like that, with however the, the world sees morality, that's what the church, that's what they believe, then that shows that there's, there's no life. I don't know how she could take it. I think we're seeing that with all, you know, we are now in the, easily in the minority of churches that, that stand against women being elders. We're in the minority. It just let you know what kind of uh, world we live in. <clears throat> but we need to be prepared to stand firm in the day of adversity. And not just persecution, of course, but trials. You know, most of us Americans just need to worry about not falling apart and being swept away by 
by every little trial, let alone persecution. I mean, that's certainly something that's coming and has it has come in a lot of ways. But as Americans who are so has it easy for so long, it's disheartening sometimes to see people completely fall apart over just the little barest of trials. And it's not to say that I don't it, it will not do the same thing, but it, it's disheartening that I don't want to. Not because it, because it's wrong, because it dishonors the Lord, but because what an awful example it is. If you see your pastor because of some not that big a deal, something everybody else goes through, and I fall apart at it. Well, you know, what would you think? <clears throat> Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. It's the same thing, right? Because you know what's coming, it affects the way you do your work. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality, because we'll stand before a perfect judge. So the last phrase of our text is saying this. Because of the events of the resurrection, we know our labor will not end in death, will not end in annihilation, it will end in judgment or life. Those are the only two options. There is no annihilation. There is none of the other things that the false religions teach. And then lastly, he says, always abounding. In everything, as I've said before, we are more than conquerors. All things work together for good. And and by more than conquerors, we'll get to this if I ever get through Romans at some point, but it's not about just conquering. He says more than conquerors. Abound in it. Don't just get through the trial, but, but, but do something great for the Lord. Make his name great in your trial. Be an encouragement to others in the trial. Conquer it. Don't let it conquer you. We hear a lot about burnout. Anyway, I've got, I've got a book, uh, read, uh, to preachers about burnout. It's, I'm not, it's a thing. There are times when we don't take care of ourselves like we should. Uh, and, and, and there's burnout. But I think that, unfortunately, a lot of the burnout is to me is kind of questionable. Is it really a problem to burn out for the Lord's work? What about those who have literally been burned at the stake for the Lord's work? Do they have burnout? Do they say, you know, they're sitting in the jail and they realize what's coming and say, well, I can't, I can't handle this. I, you know, and have a meltdown. I don't say some handle it better than others, but no, they they went. Those who serve the Lord in foreign lands, who suffer health issues daily, who die early. I, I have a personal friend I know who's, who for uh, since uh, uh, Afghanistan fell back to the Taliban has been imprisoned. And he's got uh, a wife and two lovely uh, girls. Three years or so he's been in prison now. And so, so, you know, when a pastor says, well, I've, I've got burnout. Well, I mean, I understand that it can get to you, that it, it can be rough. I'm not, I'm not saying there's no such thing, but I, I've, I've never, I've never told anybody that burnout. And, I, and that's not because I'm anything special. It's not because I haven't been through some things that, you know, you know, and everybody's situation is different. But I, we don't want to. I don't want to talk like that. Is because I want to take my place with the rest of the people. The people have really had to suffer. And to be very careful about 
acting like I just take no I'd be I need to take a sabbatical. I need I need to take a year off. And again, you know, there's some guys who have done that and I think probably well deserved. But I, I think I'm gonna be very careful about that. You know, and if I'm making not making any sense, that's okay. I'm maybe just thinking out loud. Maybe I'm just thinking about my own situation, that's okay. But rest will come in eternity. Always abound. And, and if I feel like I, I've got to stop my work because of burnout, then I'm not always abounding. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a time out. Take time out here. And I just think you need to be very careful about how we approach that. <clears throat> Many are willing to work themselves to an early grave for a few bucks or some fleeting reward. I don't find too many people, when it comes to their job, having burnout. You know, they don't like it. It's, it's, to me, it's a little interesting how the bar changes when it comes to getting up and going to work every day. And then when it's a little cold outside or you don't quite feel good, well, I'm not going to church today. I'm going. Well, you know, you feel like, don't feel like going to work. But you get up there Monday morning, you're going to be there. So I'm just saying, let's just, let's just say there's just, Lord... Let there be nothing that I can't do for you if you call me to do it. Hmm. And why do we not really burn out for Christ ultimately? Because such labor will not be in vain, Paul says. Even if it costs you your health and great suffering and, uh, you know, maybe mental, you're, mentally you're struggling, Paul says it will all be worthwhile, so keep going. You know, some of us are just going to have health issues all of our life. And you're just going to have to deal with it. Some people are going to have to deal with financial issues. Some people are going to have to deal with marital issues, family issues. We all have our own uh, crosses to bear, if, if that's even the right way to use that term. But the, and there's, there's nothing wrong with trying to improve your lot, trying to get out from underneath certain things. But we don't. We want to be careful of becoming so consumed with trying to change what we're going through that we forget to focus on the work of the Lord as we're going through it. We are never too tired to go to work, but we easily can be too tired to serve the Lord in a certain situation. Maybe one way we can say, well, is this speaking about me? Well, I'm just about done here. But one way we can get confused, I think, here is uh, in examining how we pray. A prayer request. Are they mostly requests for the removal of trials or for faithfulness through them? You see, the, the burnout is I'm going to, to, to remove myself from the trial, whereas Lord help me to be faithful in the trial. For instance, you hear a lot about when someone asks for prayer for an unsaved relative or who, you know who's sick or something, some sort of trouble. They want a prayer for the, their physical health. But it's very rare to hear the requests for their spiritual needs. You know, my my uh, my unsaved mother's sick. I, I pray for her. Well, let's pray that she gets saved. Let's pray that in her sickness, maybe the Lord will bring her to salvation. Huh? Because I'm a pastor, I've had people come up to me and say, "Well, you know, I got this need here. I got that need here. Can you pray for that?" And I say, "Well, yeah, I'll pray for that." But in some cases, I say I want to make it very clear that uh, that's not the greatest need you have. And I'm going to be praying for that need as well. We pray that, not that the Lord will take away this problem, but that the Lord will save you in that problem. I can imagine a, a scenario, let's just say, for example, that 
Hitler is a young boy. I know Hitler gets picked on a lot, but you know, he deserves it. And uh, he's attending church. Perhaps he's in a Christian home, and I don't know that he was. I'm assuming he probably wasn't. But let's just say they're at, they're in church, and uh, he's come down with a serious health issue. And his parents asked the church family to pray for him that he recover. But perhaps that's really all that they they've done, like so many do. They've asked Lord that my baby would recover, but they never really thought about well, why do I want him to recover? It was my baby. I love him. Well, yeah, that's all well and good. But do you want him to recover so that he will grow up to serve the Lord well, or you just want him not to die? And then, so then they, they pray that little Hitler wouldn't die. Well, the problem is that prayer alone has, doesn't do much because Hitler goes up to be a mass murderer. So why do we pray for what we pray for? Let's be careful that we don't get so. You know, my precious little child, we, we don't want him to die. Yes, but why don't you want him to die? Uh, how concerned are you that he grows up to serve the Lord and that that's the reason that we're asking God to bless his life and so forth? And I think it holds true when we pray for any, anybody, saints included. If God please, is God pleased if we get sick and all of our prayers for healing, we, we pray for that, but the thought is never goes beyond the fact of the healing. It never goes to why we want them to be healed. For the Lord's glory that he might be raised up to serve you well. And if he can't, take him. Because if he doesn't grow up to be uh, some uh, murderer or some someone who hates the Lord, uh, then, you know, because we don't know that, so we don't have to worry about praying. But, we just, but we, our motive's got to be right. Should we ever ask, help if our motivation isn't firstly so that we can be better servants of the Lord. Otherwise, is asking for help, but our, our motivations being wrong, really asking amiss, praying amiss. See what I'm saying? I mean, we, you know, I think this is an important thing to think about. The trials that we suffer are given to us as a means to serve. They are not given to us so that we can consume our lives with trying to remove them. And is it? If you've got, like I say, you, you, you've lost your God, you seek to remove it, right? You, yeah, I understand. We, nothing wrong with seeking to remove trials. The problem is that that's what life becomes about. Making good money, being healthy, all decent pursuits, but they're not the pursuit. They're, they're a, they're, they have a purpose. There's a reason. They're to help you serve the Lord, and that's what we're supposed to be focused on. Doing well being steadfast, unmovable in those situations. Let us always be abounding in the word of the work of the Lord because the reward for our labor is not getting healthy and wealthy or a fulfilling career or a perfect family. It's to stand in the presence of the Lord forever uh, you know, and enjoy Him. And Paul says, never swerve from that. That is to always abound in the work of the Lord. No matter what else is going on, we are to always. And, and again, it's not just a duty. Why would we not always abound in the work of God with knowing what we know and what Christ has done for us? Right? Any questions or comments in this before we close the song?